Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Billy's back, the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, veteran of 10 years. Billy gives us some basics of the psychology of surviving sickness today. What does severe sickness look like and how does it feel to lose one's abilities, be it temporarily or permanently? Content warning, this might be hard for some folks, so please give yourself permission to turn it off or take some space from it for a while if this is really challenging for you. We talk about losing the embarrassment around disability and using grieving as an opportunity to move through loss and grief towards exploration of new and interesting parts of the human condition. My personal feeling is that in some ways, disabled folks and chronic pain sufferers, um, I suppose I should include myself in that last category at least, are kind of like explorers. We get to navigate this uncommonly traversed part of the human condition. And that's also really easy for me to say right now when I'm not on the floor of my bedroom crawling towards the toilet in nine out of 10 pain. It certainly has adjusted who I am and how I relate to my body. It certainly changed how I process messages from my body. It's sort of like when your body texts you all the time in all caps, you kind of just get used to it and roll your eyes. But it's not that it gets any easier. It's, I suppose, that you just get more practiced at breathing and surviving. And in that experience comes this relief of the fear that when you're not sure if you can make it or not, you know you've made it through pretty close to about the same experience and maybe this new lowest or this new worst will be about the same. This session is split into two parts, this episode and the next one on grief, loss and having funerals for our abilities. Again, content warning, this stuff can be hard. So for now, let's start the conversation about positives, coping and managing chronic illness here with Billy on Intimate Interactions. We, we sort of touched on it earlier, really briefly, um, where I had sort of um, talked about like the importance of positivity is like one of the only things you get to control. And like as you lose control of your body, which is, I think, something truly terrifying when it first happens. And I think most people don't understand how scary that can be. As someone who went from sort of having chronic pain and bouts where my body would 
just desperately need things that I didn't know how to provide and didn't have the means to provide. And, you know, like as someone who was only non-functional for like a couple days at a time, once every like six to nine months originally, I never really thought of it as like a disability. But as I've sort of hit my early thirties and things have started getting harder, it started to become four days at a time, you know, like three, four days at a time started to happen. Like, three four times a month it was like to the point where i was just like there's no way i could have held a job like it wouldn't have been possible um and that was devastating and the first few times where i like couldn't control my pain level and i hit like a nine out of ten and was like oh god this is unbearable i need medication and then i was like oh i've already taken a gram and a half of tylenol like i nothing's going to control this and that that stomach dropping sense of like this is just you right now and you have to accept that you can't control this unbearable situation so you're gonna have to bear it that was terrifying and now I'm yeah. I'm a lot more adjusted to it now but because I wasn't totally non-functional my whole life that that slow sort of walking process towards like you have less and less function, you have less control of your body. One of the few things you do have control of is what happens in your head other than pain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's like, for me, I was a super active kid. Mm -hmm. Like I was always running and doing things and like, you couldn't stop me if you wanted to. I used to have to stop halfway through dinner, run around the block and finish my dinner. That's amazing. I had so much pent up energy and like, so over the last, you know, as I've gotten sicker, like it kind of actually started when I was 10 is that it was not my body. It was my stomach at 10 years old. I had a stomach full of ulcers, Hmm. and small intestine Mm -hmm. and no bacteria, nothing, no explanation. Just had to change my diet. blah, 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 blah. So I was like constantly like I was diagnosed with IBS all that stuff. And then it wasn't until I was 18. You don't have any notifications. Okay, that was annoying. <laughs> no worries. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, so, yeah, like it was when I was 18 that I started having problems with my limbs. And like, it was all very slow, but confusing because like, it was just different things all the time and because it was different things it didn't make sense to me so what the very first thing that I knew something was wrong is I was walking down a hill in Tawasin and I was at the top of the hill and then all of a sudden I was at the bottom of the hill my hip had dislocated and I fell all the way down the hill just tumbled down couldn't move my leg didn't know what was going on um, so it probably wasn't a full dislocation, but I get what I get what are called subluxations, where it's my joint right. pull, starts pulling out and then it snaps back in. Mm-hmm. So obviously that comes with its own slew of issues because things can get grabbed and twisted when that happens. Yeah. So I had all of a sudden like, and, and the pain didn't hit right away either. It was just confusion. And like, why can't I move my leg? How is this happening? whatever and then I was able to get up and walk it off and then all of a sudden like my knees started swelling and my ankles were swelling and like all this stuff kept happening and I had a very physically demanding job I was a a waitress and then I went to a liquor store where I was like slinging cases of beer and wine and everything all day 
So I've always done fairly physical stuff when it comes like to that and just being on my feet all day. And it was just affecting me because my joints weren't ready to deal with that. And then because like, you know, I'd gotten older and then I was adult and I could do whatever I want. I put on a little bit of weight and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured, Oh, it's just cause you know, I've put on weight. That's why I'm hurting. Like all this, <laughs> this is all my fault. And then finally I kind of realized like it's been more than a year. How does this keep happening? I need to talk to somebody about this. Mm-hmm. And from that point, like I wasn't diagnosed until I was 22. Wow. I'm and I'm considered extremely lucky. Most people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome do not get diagnosed for 10 to 20 years from their first symptom. That's incredible. So, I lucked out because I had very obvious signs. So I saw a rheumatologist and there's something that's called the Baton scale. And that's how they determine if you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, because there's two criteria, the Baton criteria and the Brighton criteria. So the Baton score is literally looking at your joints Mm -hmm. and seeing what they can do. So you get one point for being able to touch your thumb to your wrist. So that's two points. If you get both hands, Uh, you get another point. If you can bring, bend your finger, your pinky finger back past 90 degrees. If you can bend your knee past 90 degrees, if you can bend your elbow past 90 degrees, and if you can put your hands flat on the floor. I am a nine out of nine on the beta scale. Wow. So I'm very bendy. Mm-hmm. And then the Brighton criteria are what they use to determine if it's just hypermobility and you're just kind of a bendy person or if you actually have a condition. Mm-hmm. And the Brighton criteria are uh, the major ones are digestive issues. Hello. Mm-hmm. That was my very first like bright and shining aha moment. I'm like, what? Digestive issues? Where do I start? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, joint pain and at least two major joints for more than one year. So huh. I, I also passed most of the Brighton criteria. So uh, he was like, well, I know what you have and I can't help you, which was <laughs> most upsetting thing. The, that, that appointment where I got diagnosed was so traumatic because he's like, well, you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, tells me all this stuff. And it's, you know, going over my head. Cause I'm 20. saying like, what? Like I have a thing and it's a weird thing and nobody knows about it. Like, what is this? And, then he looks at me and he goes, never run. And I was like, what? Oh. He's like, never run. Your kneecaps can pop off. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, it was just like something that was just so jarring to me. Like, I was like, so if I ever run again, my kneecaps are going to come off. But like, there's taping and there's braces and there's options. But he just filled me with so much fear about this condition. Right. The very first day I hear the name, I'm like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a, a stressful day. And I'm actually going to have a nice day for myself next year because February 14th, it'll be uh, 10 years since I've been diagnosed. So Jeez. I will. I'm going to have a little Valentine's EDS night with myself. 
that's that's great though like celebrating your 10 years of being alive with an incredibly difficult condition to live with yeah like i may as well right like i got my answer i finally had my answer that day Mm -hmm. and like i went from like hearing arthritis and lupus and all these different things because i kept having a positive ana test what's what's ana uh anti-nuclear antibodies Mm. so basically if those are flaring it's a sign of an autoimmune issue right so so i always had i was always on the low positive where it was like something's wrong with her but it's like not fully right lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or one of those rheumatic conditions right like they weren't they weren't quite sure what it was and then suddenly you had your answer yes exactly like this guy knew and then looks at me and goes, and if you weren't so fat, you could have been a contortionist. Ouch. Why? Yep. Why would anyone ever say those words? A doctor. <laughs> I just, I'm yeah. just at a loss for words. It's so unprofessional and just not okay. And it's one thing to talk to me about my weight. I get it. He's a doctor. They have to. <laughs> they have to mention losing weight as an option always. As sure, like, as, I just, so that you know your options, sure. And I was 40 pounds lighter then, so ouch. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but, yeah, so I was just like, it was a very <laughs> unfun day. Yeah, that sounds... Um, but I finally had a name, and I could finally do my own research about how to help myself. Right. And that's what I was most excited about. Um, so... As much as of an upsetting day it was, it was a really like enlightening day too, right? Mm-hmm. And then I found so many good support groups online and stuff. And and one kind of funny thing is that you know me, you know that I'm very science based and evidence based. If you do not have something to back it up, I do not care to hear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So it caused a lot of grief at the beginning when I was joining these support groups because there were so many people being like, well, have you tried essential oils? Have you taken this? <laughs> have you done that? And I'm looking at them going, I have a genetic condition, which means my genome is wrong. Your citrus oils and etc. funny scents are not going to cure me of this. Like, the amount of times people have tried to sell me collagen powder in the last 10 years is outrageous. Well, it's because, like, what's your body supposed to do with that collagen? Yes. I'm like, my body doesn't know how to make it right. They're like, so take it. I'm like, do you know how eating works? Do you know what your body does? Like, it take, yeah, it takes the collagen, but it breaks it back down and then rebuilds it again. It doesn't just take the collagen and go, okay, I'll have that. Right. No, it breaks it down and then it starts building it all back up again. And like literally, even if we're thinking about futuristic treatments, it wouldn't even make sense to to find a way to put collagen in someone's blood because literally like you would do so much better to just engineer the gene into the cell because you have to be able to make the collagen attached to other collagen. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, so, and then I'm trying to explain to people about how ribosomes work and what RNA is. And then all of a sudden you just have people looking at you like, what? Like, well, think of your ribosome as like a little printer and your (laughs) RNA comes over. (laughs) 
and it goes inside. That's amazing. So, so, like, I, like, tried to dumb it down as much as I can just, like, to do, like, you know, an easy version for people. Even even and, trying to explain explain folding of peptides, because, like, I mean, we're fortunate in this conversation in that, like, I certainly have a degree um, specifically in, like, molecular genetics was one of the big things we covered. So, like, I'm very well versed in all this, but anyone listening in would sort of be like, wait, what are they talking about? <laughs> Do you want yeah, exactly. to give me your like broken down version of like how your body can't make collagen? So I basically explain it by saying like my DNA, I'm like, there's four. So I tell people like there's four letters and they make up your genome, etc. And I'm like, and your RNA is just a small segment of that little writing. Mm-hmm. So basically what happens is my body takes that recipe over to the ribosome so that it can make it, but the recipe is wrong. So no matter what, you can put all the things in, but since the recipe is incorrect, you're not going to get the final product. Like, yeah, that's a really, that's like really working, good. Right? That's, that's so a super you, simplified way to explain it. I like it. If you keep using salt instead of flour, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. You're never, <laughs> like, you're never going to get bread. So, Exactly. So it's just that my body doesn't know how to read that. Be like giving it a different language. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm like, so no matter what, it's going to come out like a sad version of Elastin. <laughs> <laughs> like, basically is what happens. Oh, that's so and sad. And they're like, oh. And then, like, that usually helps to be like, why eating it won't help me? Because when it comes down to it, my writing's wrong. Yep. But having to explain that every time to people that just consistently try and help. And they mean well, but, like, they don't know. Yeah. Well, the, the biggest thing right now is normally my disability was pretty invisible. Sometimes I had my cane. But for the most part, most of my braces fit under my clothes. I could wear baggy stuff to hide it. It was pretty easy to be a normie and just be a part of the normal community. Mm-hmm. But now, in my giant brace that uh, it's got a pillow, it actually holds my arm out at an angle, <laughs> and it's a big pillow on my chest, holding my arm in place. It's very obvious, and it is visible. Mm-hmm. And every time I leave the house, somebody random that I've never met in my life yells, what'd you do to your arm? Wow. <laughs> And I'm just like, well, you see, approximately 30 and a half years ago, my parents had sex. (laughs) (laughs) And they did it wrong. And and the cells, well, they were just no good. (laughs) (laughs) So I I love when I do that to people because they're just like, oh, my God, like. I didn't mean that. And I'm like, well, that's that's the story. Strap yourself in, friend, because we got about 40 minutes. I, I'd like to take you back to three million years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Just guide them through the whole process, leading as an unbreakable this chain. This is how bodies work. Yeah. This is evolution. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so funny. Like, But sometimes like when I'm not in the mood, I just say something really weird so that people don't inquire more. Amazing. Um, I had a 
wrist brace on for a really long time. It's a combo wrist and thumb brace because one of my thumbs isn't very attached anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, like the joint is disintegrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it flops around. So sometimes I have to wear uh, a brace. And it just got to the point with people being like, what'd you do to your arm? What'd you do to your arm? What'd you do to your arm? And I was like, well, my doctor said that I just masturbate way too much. <laughs> and they were like, what? Like, cause like everyone's like, you would say that. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't know there was a too much. That's fantastic. <laughs> I say something stupid. So they leave you alone. <laughs> yeah. I personally, I really enjoy fucking with people when they're asking like upsetting questions. Um, I get that about race sometimes where people will do the whole, like, where are you from? And I, I just really enjoy leading people around in a, in a wild goose chase. So they're, they're the two strategies, the two strategies I would use are either one, like I'm obviously born in, well, obviously I'm born in Richmond. Um, so when people from people living in Richmond or Vancouver ask me where I'm from, it's funny because I'm usually more from here than they are. And, and if birthright means anything, which it doesn't really, but like, yeah, it's so frustrating. Yeah. And then the other strategy I use is I ask them to guess because there's so many things oh. they could possibly say. So and, and nothing they say will make them look like less of an asshole at that point other than just apologizing. So they're like, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, guess this is a fun game. Let's play this fun, fun game. Where am I from? Um, and just and they keep yeah. guessing and they keep getting it wrong because I'm mixed race. So it's like good fucking luck, friend. <laughs> I mean, fortunately for me, um, I'm part Indian and part English, so I'm two major countries that people are aware of locally, politically here that um, are guessable, and it's only two countries. So, like, it isn't impossible for them to guess, um, but other than other mixed-race Indian-English individuals, it's pretty unlikely someone's going to nail it, like, in the first couple of guesses. So, I've had people go on, like, four or five guesses in, and they still think we're playing a fun game and they're just starting to realize that I'm not having fun and that I don't actually like them and that I'm actually somewhat resentful. And they're getting increasingly uncomfortable and I'm like, no, no, keep guessing. That's that's the game. I don't tell you until you get it right. So just keep guessing. And I just keep egging them on and they get more and more socially awkward. It's great. Oh my God. Yeah. The only time that I ever say, where are you from? Is when someone said, hey, I just moved here. And I say, oh, where from? Sure. You know what I mean? Like that, I don't understand how people can't understand that just asking someone that looks a little different from you where they're from is not an appropriate question. Well, and it's it's funny too because like I don't mind if people ask where I'm from once. It's when they repeatedly ask that's where I start getting frustrated. Yeah, like like literally, that's the only situation I can see myself being like, "Oh, where from? Sure, I just moved here. Cool. Like where from? Oh, Ontario. Neat. Sweet. Cool. Totally." <laughs> like, because then you get a little bit of a sense of like oh like you're from this area that's kind of cool sure and when people especially with canada because eastern canada and western canada are very different even our we sound different we do um i guess sometimes folks will say like are you local and that's totally appropriate because like you might be from like abbotsford or like mission Mm-hmm. So, like, I recognize when people are like, are you local? It's like a totally... Like, there's just so many ways of getting the information you want that don't center on, like, you know, when you ask someone where they're from and they say they're from here and you go, really? Or you go, like, where are you actually from? Like, that's when you're hitting into racist territory. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> See, what, the way I answer, like, if people ever ask, because I always say, 
oh, sorry, I'm from a small town and stuff like that. Because you know I'm from a very small town. It's true, yeah. The only people that would know where... I'm from a village. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I always, I'm like, I'm from Chase. That's so (laughs) good. (laughs) Because that's what it feels like. These people think that I'm, like, coming out of, like, the 18th century. (laughs) Coming off my farm to the big city. (laughs) Did <laughs> you ever watch Modern Family? Yes. I'm, I'm a big fan of Cam's character and how he's very yeah. from the farm. <laughs> that whole relationship is hilariously dysfunctional and charming. I love, I love it so much. Well, they're all Cam they're is... all dysfunctional, but yeah. <laughs> oh, they all are, but everyone is to an extent. Like sure. nobody's just like perfect. Absolutely. Like I, I, I find like a, a family like that that can find laughter in it like you know what i mean like there's dysfunctional families where it's like well that's a dysfunctional family yeah and then there's like families yeah it's true like growing up in a village Mm -hmm. there are a lot of kids with horrible homes yeah like yeah i I was like a kid rescuer okay so you'd go and hang out with kids that were like from really bad backgrounds I had an extra bed in my bedroom. Oh, I didn't know that. I would bring them home. I I had one of my friends lived with me for a month when her dad went on a bender and her sister. Jeez. So I let them have the big bed. And I slept in the little bed. Wow. <laughs> I literally would go around and bring kids home. The RCMP used to come to our house to see, like, ask if there was missing kids. Like if a kid was missing, they're like, let's go check Billy's place. They're like, let's check their house first. Yeah that's um that's awesome like that's such a cool legacy to have as a kid in your in your town because everyone would know you yeah and then like some kids would approach me like because i was pretty approachable and then i would find out that the reason they approached me is because their family what life was bad and i'd be like oh well come for dinner tonight you know (laughs) cool yeah oh you need clothes like i'll give you mine (laughs) that's really awesome yeah so I, I, I still like helping people you really really do i'm i'm actually quite touched by like how much you like helping people um and well, it, it sucks to go without it does it does i think experiencing shitty things helps build empathy in people for sure and you've clearly experienced a lot oh for sure Um, So I wanted to go back to this idea of comparative thinking, because when I had mentioned earlier that I had had like some experiences that were really bad for me and that I was struggling to talk about them, you were really awesome at just being super validating and like providing space for folks that, you know, are not suffering with EDS um, to be able to sort of hold space for like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the princess with a P, if it's the worst pain you've ever felt it's the worst pain you've ever felt. And that's like a significant human experience that can be very traumatizing even. Absolutely. Um, so you'd mentioned like to not compare to people who have it worse than you at the same time, we're talking about how someone like yourself maintains such a positive outlook towards other people after 10 years, almost with this condition that you live with. Do you want to say more to that? Like how you maintain positivity strategies that you have even? Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I think a lot of it comes from the, the fact that I care about other people and that 
like I what I go through is is shitty like there's no if ands or buts but if I can like the positivity I find is in like finding other people because I almost get to live vicariously through people who get to do things but also like in like in growing their experience and their happiness makes me happy like just bettering the world if you know what i mean like it's little things it's you know just Mm -hmm. even just telling someone they look good today or you know silly stuff like that but it's all in the little things that you can do and i i there's a lot of stuff i can't do right now i can barely cook for myself and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but i also make myself a resource for other people who need to talk from other support groups like my phone is constantly going off because i have different people message me um just for someone to talk to and i'm a very outgoing person so actually by having people to talk to improves my life too because Mm -hmm. then i have that like happy distraction because a lot of it is distracting right because even distraction can help pain Mm -hmm. if you can get your mind away from what's going on you can dull that so it's all in like finding what your interests are and what you like what's something that you want to do that makes you happy like if it's finding the time to go into a room and read a book that you really wanted to read and just like have everyone leave you alone and like that's your time to have and i just think because i know what i like like you know how i went <laughs> off my on my tangent about whales and stuff like that and dolphins i, I and dolphins I know I always say whales instead of cetaceans, <laughs> but um, I I found interests and I found ways to incorporate them into my life. Even though I can't go out and see the them right now and be with them, mm-hmm. I can still go online. I can be in the forums. I can be on the support groups. I can be reading about new members of the pods. Blah blah blah, which is boring to other people, but to me, it makes me happy. Like just letting. One thing I think that makes it so that I'm so positive is I've dropped this air of embarrassment. Mm. I have gone through so many horrible things that have been embarrassing. So I just throw that, like, I've thrown that out. I'm just like, I don't have time for this. So I, I find that I'm happier because I'm not sitting around going like, this person hates me because I'm doing this. I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> One thing. Okay, this is so terrible. I'm here for that. But but what I always go to in my brain is I was like, nothing is bad. It's just bad. It's six shots of lidocaine and a scalpel to your asshole. <laughs> so Say it's nothing is as bad any, as say that again. Anything. Anything cannot surpass that it's embarrassing it's horrible (laughs) cliff and i had been together for a month at that point Mm -hmm. he had to come to my parents house and take care of me while i bled all over every couch (laughs) oh that's rough it was bad you said it was was a shot of lidocaine and a scalpel to your asshole so yeah so what happened was i get like prolapse and stuff right no collagen my organs tried to escape Right. Uh, to the point where I was getting clots. Uh, so I was getting like thrombosed hemorrhoids where it would have, oh. like it would literally get strangulated and turn like dark blue, purple. And 
it is so painful. Not like you can even lay down and forget it. Um, so I was, because of this tissue getting stuck, that happened and it just kept happening. And it got to the point where I was getting them lanced frequently. Oh my God. And then finally a doctor decided that he was going to just cut away as much as he could. And so back together. That just sounds so, so painful. I, it actually tightens my chest when I think about it. Like it, I feel like a oh god, like the fact I'm like I never want to have that done again because I've had to have one more since that operation. So that operation was six years ago, and I've had to go once since then, which for me is a miracle. As I'm so, as I'm breathing, I can feel the blood returning to my face. <laughs> like yeah, I like, well, because like I've had a lot of intestinal struggles. I have a very good sense of bodily awareness in the same way you described how well you can ha, articulate um, where where your joints are where your joints are injured and what tissues are injured i can yeah. pinpoint exactly what is going wrong in my colon i can literally and doctors hate it they 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 think that i'm wrong they think i just don't know my body when i'm like yeah no i'm i'm pretty sure i have an ulcer in my ascending colon right now but my doctors never so much as sent me for an endoscope and i'm like i'm not like it wouldn't be a hardship well, let me put it. Let me rephrase. It would not be a hardship. I would be unwilling to bear to go get an endoscope done. Like, so when you say that, like, lance and like cut away inner colon flesh, I just like felt my organs lurch and was like, I, I was already like bracing for how painful that would feel because, as you know, I've done decorative cutting. I know what a scalpel feels like with no anesthesia. So like. Yep this this idea of just cutting away skin was just like that's that sounds terrifying yeah and then um i was having bleeding issues two, two years ago i guess where just no matter what i did like i was defecating blood every time mm-hmm. and it was red so it was somewhere like not that far in so but it was a lot of it and then, so I ended up having to get a colonoscopy. It took me a very long time to find a doctor willing to do it because of the EDS and perforations. Mm-hmm. Because I have a connective tissue disorder and because I am aware of my body, I had to be fully awake for it. Wow. I had to sit there while they pushed on my stomach because my colon kept moving. Right. So you, they, they essentially had to... the camera to turn the corners because it would just move away so right. they were literally a nurse was literally holding down my stomach as they pushed the camera along that sounds uncomfortable and then all of a sudden because it got to be too painful my blood pressure dropped to 75 over 50 i'd believe and that they had, uh i think they were about six feet in at that point oh my god and then i just had to sit there while they dealt with got it out. Um, right um it was half funny because i wasn't being put under they told me i didn't need to bring anyone with me what? i'm not an idiot what? so i brought my husband with me <laughs> good for you i can't believe they t- and, i just don't even know what to say to that like you'd think you'd need someone with you more yeah they're like yeah because you're not going under you can drive yourself just do whatever you want and I'm like well i don't drive and <laughs> I, I can't even imagine going through something that emotionally and physiologically like traumatic and then being like cool i'm gonna jump in my car and just fucking haul my ass home by the way i'm gonna be sitting in that car like the notion is just crazy 
Yeah, like, I was just like, oh, whatever. So I brought Cliff. And I know my issues with my blood pressure. I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. I have dysautonomia. And I know if you freak out my autonomic system, Mm -hmm. it will freak out back. So all the movement inside my digestive system set me off. That's why my blood pressure dropped. And they were freaking out. Like, they didn't know what to do. They were like, oh, my God, like, how do we get her, like, fixed? Right. And I'm, like, sitting in the chair, like, recouping, like, afterwards. And I, like, reach over in my bag while they're arguing and, like, pull out a Gatorade and, like, crack it. And they're like, oh, does this happen to you a lot? I'm like, air day. (laughs) (laughs) Air day. I'm from Chase. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you guys are so cute with your little argument. Yeah. Seriously. Like, they're sitting there going, like, do we give her fluids? And I'm just like, do-do-do. Yeah. Sometimes um, you're so, sometimes yeah, you're the most experienced. You know, it's like sometimes people don't know to to look to the patient, but sometimes you are the most experienced, especially with unique conditions. Yeah, and like I swear that whole situation has given me so much mental anguish. It took me like a really long time to not just think about it and be horrified because it was traumatic. Have you it was have you ever considered like putting some of this material together for doctors and just actually teaching doctors? I've honestly thought about it. There was one time, one whole time in the many times I've been to Delta hospital that I was treated well, oddly enough, getting a hemorrhoid lanced. Wow. It was a super, super nice young female doctor. And I was like, finally, somebody's not going to just, be rude and she's like and how old are you and i was 27 at the time i guess Mm -hmm. and um she was just like and how many times have you had this done and i was like i think this is number seven wow she she just like was just like blown away she was just like i she's like oh my god you shouldn't have to deal with this right like (laughs) like if only this was you know this is one of a thousand things but right. I was like, yeah. And then she's like, and then afterwards they always do this. The nice ones always do this. And it just like cringy. They're like, I wish I had my student with me today. They would have loved to meet you. You could have showed them everything. And I'm like, welcome to show and tell. My name is Billy. Today I'll be showing you how I can bend things. Right. <laughs> my name is Billy. I have so. EDS. Hi, Billy. Pretty much. Yeah, just about need to. Well, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. It's just my physiotherapist is like the most amazing physiotherapist I've ever met in my life, and I love her to pieces. So she brings students in just because she's like, if you need information on Ehlers Danlos syndrome or anything like that, like talk to this girl. She's infinite resource. She's so smart. And I'm like, yeah, not really, but thank you. And <laughs> but... and and also they should pay you for that. Like I know that Wouldn't no one. Nice? I know that no one wants to, which is fucked up, but it you're not doing them a service teaching them how to do their job. Yeah, exactly. And like the biggest thing I tell physiotherapists and even doctors is I'm like, believe them, please. Because like I have, okay, so this sounds funny because I am very aware of my issues, but I have um, issues with proprioception. So what okay. that means is I don't, have a good awareness of where my limbs are. Mm-hmm. So because I don't get feedback, like, so say like you were to bend your, like your arm too far 
and put pressure on your elbow or something, for example, your body goes, ooh, too far, stop, and you stop, right? Mm-hmm. I don't get the stop message. Right. So I'll, I'll just go into full dislocation or subluxate. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a warning because my body didn't go, hey, you went past 90. Right. <laughs> like, there's no little alarm or bell that rings. Like, it's just all or nothing with me. So a lot of my feedback is visual. Mm-hmm. And I've learned where things should be and what things are supposed to look like. So when I exercise, I have to watch every movement. Because when I go out of my range of vision, I hyperextend. Right. It's almost clockwork. And it drives my physiotherapist crazy. So like, what are your hands doing? I'm like, what are my hands doing? She's like, their fingers are bent backwards. I'm like, I don't know. Right. I like, do I it. can't track that. Like, yeah. So it, I, we've been working on it and slowly it's getting there. I'm getting the feedback from my muscles instead. Cool. Um, so like I feel a pull with my muscle because I've managed to develop that muscle in that area. Right. So instead of my ligaments and tendons going, okay, we stop here. It's my muscle saying, hey, normally you tell us to stop here. Right, because they just get <laughs> they get used to moving in that range of motion. And because you're developing your muscles in that range of motion, you feel when you leave that range of motion. Exactly. So it's all like it's such a weird thing that like for me, it's visual and muscle, whereas everybody else gets like this magic symbol that I know nothing about. Right, that doesn't, that isn't necessarily painful, but that is just kind of like a gentle, not always, um, stopping to a range of motion, where when you try, yeah. your body just prevents you from doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I want to know, I want to know what that feels like. like. It's it's a beyond concept for me. Right, like, you know like a mean? color you've never seen. Exactly. Like it's it's kind of funny how that works in the sense that like my condition has made it so that like something that almost every single person on the planet will feel, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing like, that you laugh at that because to me that's like such a bleak thought in a sense. It's like, oh cool, there's this piece of the human experience that just was never meant for me. But like you're able to move through it in a way that's just like funny and like silly and doesn't take it that seriously and i yeah. i'm just really well, impressed it, because it doesn't sound fun to me do you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah, I, that's true i, I i'm not like hmm i want to feel some sort of pressurey slight pain when my right. limbs move it's it's so luckily it's not something i desire right uh, a lot of things i would be horribly upset about well sure. and i slowly that way about a lot of things that i've lost sure um but like yeah it's kind of just like for that one i get to be like whatever you silly humans with your your stop messages right whatever (laughs) but like and then your bodies that regulate themselves what is this crap (laughs) i know and like my physiotherapist She's just amazed by it because she's like, I've never seen someone with such bad proprioception. And she works with people with vertigo. She works with people with like everything. Okay. Like she is well-versed. She's amazing. And she's just like, Billy, you're doing it again. And I'm like, what? What am I doing? <laughs> like, it's just, it's just so bizarre to me, I guess. It's and kind of funny. It's kind of, it is kind of funny. I, I see the like, 
of like okay great like of all of the people my physio sees I am just like the literal worst <laughs> proprioception. It's like it's I've almost never a, won. I've never won. It totally deserves a medal. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> no proprioception award. Just make sure it's in my range of vision, or I won't know it's there. So the, <laughs> so I'm I'm good with talking about. Um, I, I'm good with sort of what we've what we've focused on for this session. Um, I would like to transition to talking about grief, if you'd be willing to do that. Yeah, for sure. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.